It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2022, and I'm Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Today we are celebrating Pride Month with a discussion on LGBTQ plus inclusivity in government. Our program will begin with a discussion with the Honorable Sean Skelly and continue on a further discussion of the issues with Linda Ortiz, LGBTQ Program Manager at the Internal Revenue Service, and Carla Walter, Senior Director for Employment Policy at the Center for American Progress. Let me start by introducing the Honorable Sean Skelly, who currently serves as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness at the Department of Defense. ASD Skelly was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on July 21, 2022. She advises the Secretary of Defense on the strategic and operational readiness of the armed forces. She develops and oversees programs to ensure their readiness. ASD Skelly supervises the comprehensive enterprise-wide readiness system that measures the capability of the armed forces to carry out the national defense strategy. ASD Skelly also maintains policy and oversight of military service and joint training and education. ASD Skelly is also the co-founder and former vice president of Out in National Security, formerly served on the Atlantic Council's LGBTI Advisory Council, and was a member of the Service Year Alliance Leadership Council. I had the pleasure of meeting ASD Skelly while she served as, the com as a commissioner on the National Commission of Military National and Public Service. I've been following her work ever since, and I must say it is impressive work to follow. ASD Skelly, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Natalia. It's a real pleasure to be with everyone today. Can we just start by hearing a little bit about what Pride Month means to you as a government professional? And then if you can tell us about your experience um, in government. Thanks. You know, um, it's something I've been thinking about um, anew since I um, became a um, confirmed, you know, presidentially appointed Senate confirmed um, senior leader at the Department of Defense, where um, my personal identity has become more intertwined with my professional identity than it did before. Um, because, uh, you know, originally, um, my personal identity, as I came to understand it, had to be hidden, as you know, as, a, as part of my service, my uniform service at the end of my career. Um, then when I, um, it, it became um, public as a, as a private sector employee, um, but then when I returned to government service as an appointed uh, civilian, uh, the first time it, it really wasn't um, was certainly relevant to me, um, but it, um, it wasn't really a public thing. Not that anyone, not that anyone hit it, but I was just you know, a president, presidentially appointed Schedule C employee, a GS-15, and my job was to keep my head down, my nose to the grindstone, and support my principal, you know, an undersecretary of defense. Um, so nobody paid too much attention to me except for what I delivered and produced and so forth. But then when you get presidentially nominated and you go before the Senate for confirmation, who you are is part of the process. And, um, and a, a good bit of uh, notoriety publicity comes with um, that process. So it's been a bit more explicit, a lot more explicit as to my identity, um, the significance um, of my being um, now, and I believe still, uh, the, only the second transgender person to go before the U.S. Senate for confirmation um, and be confirmed, along with um, Dr. Levin at Health and Human Services. Um, and so uh, my place in government um, as an Assistant Secretary of Defense brings with it significant responsibilities. Um, I believe my place um, 
in history as it gets called out as other people have, have told me and I think in a very earnest moving way what it means to them that um, a president is uh, literally walking his talk with regard to making um, his administration reflect America and I think um, what's noticeable to me is that um, that the government represents the people that it serves not just the administration layer but the entirety of the executive branch. Um, there are professionals like me across government. Um, and then when it comes to Pride Month is understanding that uh, even though I'm presidentially appointed um, and all those things, um, to realize that I'm not alone. Um, and for, for many LGBTQI plus Americans, no matter where you are, uh, to, including, to including government, you can often, as part of your journey at one point or another, and you can those times can be revisited upon you as well, um, it can feel pretty lonely um, as, you, as you come to understand yourself, as those who love you um, come, to, come to understand you, then, you know, almost everybody has to work, you know, to support themselves um, as, as, you're, as your true self, you know, as your identity can, as you can share it. Um, we know that uh, I think, and my fellow um, guests here probably un, un, know the number better than I do, but somewhere around half to 60% of Americans aren't out at work. You know, so there's this presumption that if you are LGBTQ and it's Pride Month, you know, you're setting off uh, those little glitter poppers and you're hanging rainbows everywhere in your workspace. That's not necessarily so. Um, so um, those of us that can and are out and are in a place that's safe and protective as the federal government is supposed to be, um, it's, um, it's almost in, in one sense kind of an obligation of those of us who are senior and out to let it be known that we are not alone and that those around us can know that it can be possible, that they're not alone, that they're represented and um, our contributions are noted. Um, my day is pretty busy um, due to my seniority and the responsibilities. Um, so that means I'm often shuttling from one thing to another, focusing on what what that calendar event is of the moment. Um, so the opportunity to um, remember who it is I represent, but who it is I'm also a part of, and um, to go to a couple of events this month so far, official events. Um, the hugs have been quite welcome because I, I need them as much as anybody else does, frankly. And it does do me a world of good to know that I myself am not alone. Um, but that I'm also, I'm a representative of a lot of professionals out there. And I'm not sure we even know what that number is, which is a task that uh, I think a lot of people in government have and want to see pursued, is to understand how many people do serve in government that are part of the LGBTQI community to better facilitate government's enablement of their service. Thank you so much um, for providing that perspective, hearing that you are only one of two individuals, or, or the second rather, who have been confirmed by the Senate as a transgender individual, I mean, it really is, you are a beacon in a lot of ways and a leader in your community, even if you perhaps didn't intend to be, you know, you, you're just trying to serve your nation. Um, one of the things that you have done to really, you know, walk the walk in terms of making sure people know that they are not alone is found out in national security. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and what your mission was there? Thank you. Um, so I was one of three co-founders, my um, colleagues, Luke Schleusner and Rusty Pickens. We all served in the Obama administration. Uh, Luke and Rusty were both at the White House. Luke and I met at Department of Defense. Rusty then moved on to um, the State Department. And uh, we realized, well, we were at that time part of the largest uh, cadre of LGBTQ people in a presidential administration. Um, the larger LGBTQ community didn't necessarily have a great appreciation of what national security really was and that it was not just foreign policy and people with international relations degrees and former, um, as I often say, knuckle draggers who served in the military like I did. Um, it's that the Department of Defense is about 3.5 million people when it's the active duty military, the career professionals, the contractors, and all of that comes together. There's every, virtually every discipline known to professional civilized society in this department from teachers to scientists. We have some archeologists out there. We have people that do childcare. You know, we have engineers and doctors as well as pilots and all of the military specialties and their lawyers, um, personnel specialists. Everything is found that 
it's the foundational wherewithal of national security just in the Department of Defense, let alone in foreign affairs and international development and homeland security and justice and those things that are broadly considered national security. Um, and LGBTQ people are found in every segment of society, no matter which way you cut it. So that LGBTQ people are in and can serve in national security was the thing that we thought wasn't sufficiently explicitly stated and understood in that way. In some respects, it was still that, well, we know y'all are there, but we don't know what y'all do. But meanwhile, we're proud and, you know, glitter. <laughs> and I use that as a shorthand, but it's to kind of demystify it in, in, in some respect and also show the young people who are out there that there is a place for them. You will find yourself in this community and in national security as much as any other place. If you're serving all of the countries explicitly as national security does, as does every other part of the federal government, it needs to be clear that we're represented while we're serving everybody else. We're not just the people standing the watch on the wall and all of those kinds of scenes. We do represent America and you should feel that you can find your place there. So it was in, um, help to facilitate the place of people in there, but also to help ensure, help to provide a little bit, you use the word first beacon, that young folks who have, who have career aspirations know that their aspirations can find purchase. They, they can be welcomed in there in that way. That leads very well into what we're gonna talk about in our next segment, specifically looking at LGBTQ inclusivity in the national security arena and the efforts that your office has taken to increase that inclusivity. We do have to stop here for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We will be right back to continue the conversation with Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, Sean Skelly. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I am here with Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, Sean Skelly, discussing Pride Month and inclusivity in government. Assistant Secretary Skelly, one of the things that, you know, is very unfortunate that we often hear um, is that the focus on LGBTQ inclusivity doesn't advance national security goals or the focus on it could perhaps even undermine national security goals. How do you respond to that accusation? I consider it an accusation, frankly, because I don't know that anybody, well, I'm not aware that people say that as much as I hear it about LGBTQ issues, but that says it about African-Americans, Blacks, Hispanics, uh, women in the force. Um, we're all Americans. We can all contribute to national security as well as the military. Um, I often believe that it's, um, a misunderstanding in some respect of what it takes for the military to do its job. It's often uh, simplified by um, the um, the description is that there's a the spear and the tip of the spear and the tooth to tail, whereas what it takes to the old um, the older paradigms of the combat troops, the infantry on the ground in so many places, and what it takes and all the specialties that go into putting people into direct ground combat, which is far from being the only way in which nations happen to wage war, either with each other or with um, terrorism groups and violent extremist groups and the like, or in the, the gray zone of warfare, it's often, it takes intelligence professionals, aviators, logisticians, people who know all of the forms of communications from radios to cyber to all of that. Um, it takes medical professionals. It, it, it takes all these disciplines and only, barely a, over a third of uh, all of them are direct ground infantry combat type things. Um, but combat can be found everywhere. There's no real sanctuary if you're in a theater of war. So the notion that anybody who is not, you know, an elite special forces person that you role play in, in, in a video game is some sort of distraction. I don't know anybody who we would consider uh, 
a shooter, a door kicker, an infantry, armor, artillery, who doesn't need all of those disciplines to do their job and that they would want to go there without somebody who's providing them the intelligence, the communications to do their job, the logistics that they need. That's the people who are going to be there if they get wounded or are going to come back and care for them. All of those things. That the water they're being provided is clean. We have people at those specialties. And it takes that whole set of professions and disciplines and competencies to come in every, and people who can do that, people who want to do it can be found in every demographic of America, no matter which way you slice it by identity, by gender, by ethnic background, by you know socioeconomic place, region, it doesn't matter. And that's what it takes to make the whole force go. No professional who does this business believes that it's anything other than that is what it takes to actually succeed. Absolutely. And it, you know, it's important to remember that LGBTQ plus people have been serving our nation in these capacities throughout our nation's history. This is about making sure that they feel safe in doing so. And a big part of that is just over 10 years ago, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. What steps has the department taken to help LGBTQ plus individuals live their most authentic lives while working with the department? Speaking as an individual, I wasn't involved with um, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal. And I presently don't work on, I work for the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, and I'm his readiness assistant secretary. Um, but the Secretary of Defense has stated that he believes our most important strategic asset in the Department of Defense is our people, the people that actually do the jobs, um, and all the work that um, is required. I think what came after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it was so focused on the individual service members, those people who serve, those people who had to serve in hiding, um, and those people who were put under a form of double jeopardy with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Some commanders um, honored it, others didn't. There were folks who were discharged under uh, contrived circumstances in a lot of the cases where um, they were believed to be um, LGBTQ, they might be discharged for you know, uh, a, a, a discipline thing other than the don't ask, don't tell provision. Um, but after it was repealed and in, 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 in the study of the repeal and in the implementation of it, you know, it's not just about the individual. We often say, um, you know, we recruit a service member, but then we retain their family. So many people, you know, um, find partners, get married, um, they have children. Sometimes they bring partners and children with them into service. And it's the, it's the family that's going to determine and how that family feels supported and how they appreciate the service member's career um, is how we're going to keep them. And it's the continent. So policies had to be adjusted for all those things. We have people all across America and all across the world. Um, we not all of those tours um, allow people to take their families with them, but many of them do. And it's how we account for an LGBTQ person serving in uniform, as well as there are complications for civilians when they serve in foreign countries, um, depending upon that host nation's laws. Um, but it's how we account for those our service members as the center of, for our purposes, for the center of a family and our relationship to that entire family, and that those people feel supported, and that. Because readiness starts at home. For people to do their job, they need to feel not be distracted by the fact that their family uh, life may be complicated by who they are as an American and as a service member so that they can do their job in that way. So I think it's really been an evolution over time to understand what it takes to support an LGBTQ American who's part of an LGBTQ family, which doesn't mean everybody in that family is themselves LGBTQ, their children and all those others that are their dependents but that what it takes for that family to be supported so that the person that we are actually have in our employment or in, their, or in uniform service can do what we need them to do, what we've asked them to do and do it to the fullest extent possible in a modern sense, which is understanding it's not just show up and do the thing and good luck to you when you go home. That doesn't work. It doesn't work for Fortune 500 companies. It certainly doesn't work for the Department of Defense either. 
that focus on, you know, the whole person. I definitely think that's a shift we've seen in recent years. And it's really critical because as you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I loved what you said about recruiting the service member, but retaining the family. Um, it's very true that you need to focus on the unit as a whole so that someone can truly be successful. The time of thinking that people leave work and, you know, there's no connection between the personal and professional um, is very much over. And I think that is something that even when you describe your experience in government, we've seen how that transition has occurred. I'm curious, what does the future of supporting LGBTQ individuals in government, in the military, what does that look like to you, both from your experience and where you think we need to go in the future, as well as from a readiness perspective, uh, what do you think the department needs to do in the future? I think we see the future in large part playing out before us today. Um, even in the past, um, after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, after um, the first, uh, when the, the Obama administration first explicitly opened up uh, uniform service to out transgender people and allowing them to transition while serving, um, it was obvious that, you know, as I mentioned, we have folks serving all across the country and across the world. And um, how your employer, the Department of Defense, the, the, uh, the US government viewed you and treated you wasn't didn't off, sometimes would not extend and be, you would not be treated similarly or held in the same regard in whatever um, state or county or local area that you found yourself in under their laws. Your spouse might be treated differently outside of a federal installation. Your rights as an individual, your, your personal relationships as married individuals or cohabitants, the relationship to your children um, can be different in there, those that you're responsible for. And now in 2022, we see that's being amplified in, in certain uh, state governments. That's just a fact with how uh, bills are being considered and laws are being passed and enacted into law as to um, that can make people feel, bring question as to whether or not they're welcome in the places that they're serving and what that does to their complications as a family in those places, or as just as individuals conducting their lives outside of their work hours and their immediate workplace because the vast majority of our folks live off of an installation. A good number do, generally the ju more junior folks, but most people live out on the economy, as we say, in town. And so we know that some jurisdictions there, folks may not feel welcome. They might be able to access healthcare services that they were able to access in some form before. Those might be becoming uh, under greater uh, stress and availability may be lessened for some folks. And uh, senior leaders in the department have already started talking about that there. And I think that we're living that future today because we have to increasingly understand what it takes, as we uh, spoke before, what it takes to support the people who serve the nation within our department. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, we are going to get ready to move towards our, our second side of this panel. But before we do, is there any, you know, last minute Pride Month messages that you want to send out to our listeners who are both military and civilian personnel? I hope that everybody who serves knows that even if they themselves are not out, which is a very out at work or out period, it's the most intensely personal decision I think someone faces, certainly one that I faced. Um, even if you're in those circumstances, you're not alone. Um, and you don't have to be alone as much to the extent that you can reach out and find each other. We have communities of all sorts, um, virtual. Um, you can commune with folks outside of work, outside of, um, off, your, off your workplace if you're fortunate. Um, but understand that senior leadership will see you and will and wants to support you in that way. And we value everyone as a, as a person, as a human being, as an American. And they should, <clears throat> excuse me, they should feel that in their work. Your love and happy pride to everybody. Thank you so much, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, the Honorable Sean Skelly. I appreciate so much that you joined us here today and all of the work that you do uh, for our nation. When we return, we will bring in my two additional guests to continue this conversation. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network.
Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are just entering the second half of our Pride Month program. I will be continuing the conversation on LGBTQ plus inclusivity with Linda Ortiz, LGBTQ program manager at the Internal Revenue Service, and Carla Walter, senior director for employment policy at the Center for American Progress. At the IRS, Ortiz works on facilitating gender transitions in the workplace and providing LGBTQ sensitivity sessions to enhance diversity awareness. Welcome, Linda, and thank you so much for being here. Carla Walter focuses primarily on improving the economic security of American workers by increasing worker wages and benefits, promoting workplace protections, and advancing workers' rights. At the Center for American Progress, Walter has worked on research relating to improving job opportunities for LGBTQ plus workers and workers' rights issues related to the federal contracting community. Carla, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now that uh, we've, you know, had this great conversation with the Honorable Sean Staley, um, I, I want to give each of my guests an opportunity to tell me a little bit about themselves, as well as provide any reactions they have uh, to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness's discussion uh, that we just had. So, Linda, I'll start with you. Please feel free to tell the guests a little bit about yourself and any general reactions you have. Will do. Thank you. And uh, hello, everyone. I'm honored to participate on this panel. I'm especially uh, honored to hear your story, Honorable Skelly. That was so interesting and your, and your insights. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I've served as a federal employee at the IRS for over 35 years. Uh, during my tenure, I've worked tax collection positions, of course, as well as 14 years in management, five years as a full-time union officer, and the past 10 years in the Office of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, or as we know it, EDI. Now I'm currently a Senior Diversity and Inclusion Specialist in EDI headquarters, and I'm serving as the LGBTQ Program Manager for the past four years at the IRS. I facilitate gender transitions in the workplace so that I can ensure that there's a smooth transition for the employees, management, and, and all the employees in the, work, in the workforce. I provide LGBTQ awareness presentations for the workforce as well. I am contacted a lot by individual teams, managers that want uh, to be more aware, the terminology uh, they want to hear about the LGBTQ community. And I'm, that just makes me, I'm, this is a very busy month for me, I have to say, but throughout the years, the last two years, we have really increased in folks coming out at work, okay? Uh, I'm a dedicated ally. I'm asked a lot of times during my presentations, are you a lesbian? What part of the, of the group do you belong to, okay? And I'll always say, well, you know, I'm a strong ally. I've been married 44 and a half years to the same man. I'm heterosexual, but I am an ally and I'm always helping. Uh, I partner with IRS Globe, and you'll hear more about that later. They are an internal employee organization that addresses any concerns or situations that, may, that this community may have in the workplace. Thank you. Thank you so much. Linda, Carla, I'll turn to you now for the same question. 
Sure. So I direct employment policy at the Center for American Progress. So my role is looking specifically at the economy from the workers' perspective. How do we improve the economic security of American workers, increasing their wages and benefits, promote workplace protections, and advance their rights at work? And increasingly, we've been working across the Center for American Progress, which is a progressive policy advocacy organization um, to think about how do we ensure all Americans are included in this dialogue? How do we address differences in outcomes for groups that have been marginalized throughout our history by corporations and by the government in ways that harms their economic security? So increasingly, we've been thinking about what do we, in this current moment that we're in, how do we think about advancing the economic security of LGBTQIA Americans? And really, uh, it's it's really exciting to be thinking and doing work in this space right now because we have an administration that has been a true advocate and ally of this community and thinking about how do we fire on all cylinders in terms of working across the government to, to support LGBTQIA workers and their families. So that includes things like rep repealing the ban on trans troops in the military that, that the Trump administration put in place. Um, also um, really starting to think about how do we raise standards for LGBTQIA people and ensure they are part of a broader dialogue about job quality and supporting good jobs for all Americans and ensuring that we are specifically focusing on LGBTQIA workers in this dialogue. And as uh, Assistant Secretary Skelly talked about, the, the power of thinking about the federal government as an employer is really incredible. The, the, the federal government through military and direct civilian employees employs 4.3 million workers which is 2.5 million, or sorry, 2.5 times more workers than, than Walmart, which is our largest private sector employer. So, you know, the scope of the government's power as employer is huge. 5% um, of the federal workforce openly identifies as LGBTQ, but as we know, many, many more are probably not out at work. There is also considerable power for the administration as a, as a, a contractor of goods and services to raise standards for these workers. The government spends $600 billion every year on contracts, and one estimate finds that approximately one in five Americans is employed in the private sector by a company that contracts with the government. So in order to understand this sort of power that the federal government has and, and ensure that it's not undercutting standards for workers, we have in place a set of protections that have been longstanding to ensure that contract workers earn decent market wages and benefits. And have, we've enacted these reforms to protect the contract workers from discrimination. And research really shows that when these standards are strong, it can reduce poverty rates, it can ensure workers earn middle-class incomes, and it can increase participation of historically marginalized groups. And so, like I said earlier, we're, we're excited to see the Biden administration taking this whole of government approach in terms of raising standards. So it's rolling back the Trump administration's damage and really sort of attack on trust in government to, to, for LGBTQ workers to have their back. It's fully implementing the Supreme Court's historic decision in Bostock that prevents workplace discrimination discrimination based on LGBTQIA status. It's, it's creating passports that are inclusive of not on non-binary Americans. And it's really rebuilding and funding key enforcement agencies um, and collecting new data um, on the economic well-being of LGBTQ plus Americans. And really also thinking about how we, as we start to spend money on the historic bipartisan infrastructure um, law and so on, how do we ensure that those programs are supporting good jobs for Americans from all walks of life? Carla, thank you. I really appreciate that you not only look at this from the federal government perspective, but looking at the whole economy and looking at our nation's workforce and how the federal government really helps create momentum in the larger workforce around these issues. I want to take a step back. Linda, you mentioned, I mean, you've have such a long career of service in the federal government. I want to ask what you have seen in terms of a change in the last, you know, several, not only the last several years, but the last couple of decades in terms of recognition on LGBTQ plus inclusivity. Um, and when for you did it become most apparent that not only was change happening, but, but that you wanted to be part of it as an ally in your work in diversity, equity and inclusion? You're right. Through the generations, I've seen the pendulum swing. Um, th there's also the generational gaps. You know, the IRS has a lot more um, baby boomers 
Okay, and traditionalists, then we have uh, Gen Xers, and so their their vision is different of how they feel about this community. Okay, um, but what we've done is I've actually it depends on the administration that's in office. You know, that's what triggers in our agency the kind of focus that we'll have. So I've seen from zero focus to you know we better you know do a check mark in the box to now, oh, wait, okay, we really need to have a program manager and training. And, you know, uh, the last year alone, I've been able to, uh, because of the two executive orders, I've been able to go ahead and um, develop a um, gender trans neutral language guide. Okay. Uh, and Treasury has adopted that because we're, IRS is only one of the nine bureaus in Treasury, but we're the largest. We're about three fourths of the um, workforce. Okay, we're over 80,000 employees. So I've seen a lot of change. And that within the last two years, I've seen a lot more support. I've seen um, with Executive Order 13988, I mean, we've been able to, you know, have a lot more focus on this. Okay, the 14095, uh, I believe I have it written down. It is also another one where we are doing a lot of uh, outreach. Employees are coming out. And even for this month's theme for Pride Month, um, from silence to solidarity, okay? We've had employees coming out saying, I'll go, this year is the first year that I have an observance event. All the other years, I could not have anyone in leadership step forward to be a guest speaker or on a panel. And this year I had people volunteer. So it is, it is changing and it's a very good change within the agency. Thanks. It's great to hear that the agencies are really, um, you know, because I think the leadership has provided an opportunity, this administration has provided the opportunity that we're seeing it trickle down and we're seeing the momentum. One of the things that you mentioned, Linda, was this kind of age gap and generational gap within the federal government. Um, the federal government does, you know, have a, a, a older a average age than perhaps the private sector workforce. Um, I'm curious if you have anything more to say, or Carla, if you have anything to add about how the kind of generational age range of our workforce, maybe it can sometimes be a barrier or maybe a new opportunity to educate people who have not, you know, had such a, you know, I grew up in a very inclusive environment, but, but a lot of people did not. I've had to go ahead and adjust my opening and in my sessions throughout the years. Uh, I've had people get up and walk out. I've had people say, you know, you are violating my personal and religious beliefs. So yes, it's been to where now I, at the very beginning, I have a disclaimer, you know, and this is an awareness session to teach you about treating each other with dignity and respect and following the law. Those are the two topics I'm touching on. I'm not violating your personal beliefs or religious beliefs. And then we can continue and people are a little more open to hearing it, so. Yeah, and I think from a nuts and bolts perspective, the federal government has an aging workforce and that is, well, that means that there are benefits in terms of experience. It also means that the federal government needs to get very serious about attracting new generations of workers. And we know that young people, LGBTQ folks and their allies take it very seriously that their workers' full identity is respected and valued in the workplace. And so if the federal government wants to be, that's why Linda's work is so important. If the federal government wants to be a place where workers want to come and young workers want to come, then it needs to be able to do this, this, this work of training its workforce to be an open and accepting place and a safe place for workers to be out. Well, one simple example is the use of the word queer you know, the older generation is saying, don't say that, you know, that's not acceptable. But the younger generation is saying, well, I'm genderqueer. I don't mind using. So that's a clear example of where we're headed. Thank you so much. And we're going to talk more about exactly where we're headed and how we get there in our final segment. We're going to stop here for a quick word from our sponsors. We will wrap up this discussion when we return. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. 
Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We are entering the last segment of our show. Let's dive right in. We're talking in this segment about really the future of LGBTQ plus inclusivity in government and how we get there. So I want to start with hearing from Linda. You mentioned that you work closely with these um, employee organizations that represent these persons. And I want to hear from you about what you're hearing from them um, and, and what they're looking for moving forward. Okay, well, first, I'd like to clarify that IRS Globe is the employee organization within the IRS that represents, of course, this, this group, but the IRS currently has 17 employee organizations and employee resource groups uh, from the different races and denominations. And as Honorable Skelly said, the LGBTQ community is in every segment. So what we do is we meet with the presidents, the national presidents of the 17 organizations to find out if there's any issues or concerns, general issues. But we understand that LGBTQ community is within each of the 17 organizations. Now, IRS Globe focuses only on this, on this community. So um, let's see, what they do is they're, they used to be one chapter in DC up until 2020. We had one chapter, okay, for years. And now there's nine chapters within one year, okay? And that is the, not only the great work of a new president that took over, but um, the employees stepped forward at the different sites saying, you know, we're having concerns. We have employees that pull our pride flags down we are having uh, some concerns uh, about the, the terminology here. And what we do is uh, they reach out to me and then I connect them to the president um, of IRS Globe. And then we stand up a chapter at that site. The reason we do that is because the IRS, of course, we've created a policy to uh, guide management to partner with the employer organizations and resource groups. So under that umbrella, by becoming a chapter, they're now, they now have the strength to be able to host uh, events and uh, have time off to work on them. So um, this has been a big win where we've been able to expand IRS Globe from one chapter to nine chapters. Okay, um, let's see, now you're saying, go ahead and see any current state, if there's any problems, is that what you're yeah. asking? Well, I'm curious what you're hearing, you know, in these conversations, you mentioned there is something specific to Pride Month, um, where I guess organizations are concerned about not being able to, to show off their pride. But what are some of the other things that you're hearing from these organizations? One item that was elevated, for example, was use of pronouns in their signature line. Okay, um, that was elevated as a concern because uh, I was assisting employees that were transitioning in the workplace. If I was involved, then management had no problem with them putting their, their uh, pronouns uh, under their name. And they also, uh, I went ahead and helped them get their email changed and everything, despite the fact that their name change wasn't legally changed yet. Okay. But when other folks were transitioning without EDI's assistance, they were facing um, an upstream battle in being able to put the pronouns in their signature line. So what happened was I went ahead and submitted an, uh, a manual change request, you know, here at the IRS, and I asked them to go ahead and leave it optional, let employees be able to decide if they would like to have their pronouns and do it service-wide so that anybody who isn't out will feel comfortable putting their pronouns there. So that was a big win. That was a big, a big best practice for us. 
That's a great point about making it service wide so that individuals who are part of the community don't feel like there is a spotlight on them for choosing to use their pronouns. I think that's a really important, you know, important part of this conversation is making these things more normalized so that it it doesn't create an uncomfortable spotlight for certain individuals. Carla, I was hoping you could speak to some of the barriers that you're seeing, um, both in the federal government and, you know, across the workforce and increasing inclusivity. One issue I would like you to speak on that I know you've written on before is the role of data in improving our understanding of these issues. Sure. Um, Yeah, thanks for that. I, you know, and I think like talking a little bit about the broader context around the economic security of LGBTQ Americans in their role as workers is really important. And what we know is that for decades, LGBTQI plus people have faced increased risk of experiencing economic insecurity, whether that be higher rates of poverty, unemployment rates, and public benefits usage. And during the pandemic, we really saw this continued Um, impact to be disproportionately harmful to LGBTQ households. So compared to non-LGBTQ households, they're more likely to experience food insecurity during the pandemic, loss of employment, significant financial challenges and barriers to accessing healthcare. And even in recovery, we're seeing that despite the fact that there is a very tight labor market, um, there is this perpetuation of existing inequities. Um, The Census Bureau recently added questions about sexual identity and gender identity in one of its surveys. And this was a big win because this is not common. And what they found is that LGBTQ individuals uh, are more likely to be employed or as just as likely when we're looking at it by age as non-LGBTQ individuals. So they're working, but there are job, significant job quality problems. The, um, these workers are more likely to live in households earning below the poverty line. LGBTQ folks are more likely to struggle to make ends meet, and they're more likely to experience employment loss. So in this context, it's really important to think about what does it mean to overcome these barriers, the barriers that include widespread discrimination that prevents workers from accessing good job, um, the ability to move up and into other good jobs, to better jobs once they're on the job because of discrimination. Um, also, uh, discriminatory work policies like healthcare coverage that doesn't cover essential gender affirming care for trans workers. And then also more broadly, we are in the midst of a good job shortage that has been 40 years in the making in the US. And LGBTQ workers, because of their lack of economic security as compared to other workers and other historically marginalized groups are bearing the brunt of this problem. So while American wages have been started um, to grow with inflation over the last year, we have to overcome decades and decades of wage stagnation in a way that is putting far too many workers' livelihoods at risk. So when we think about what we need to do, a first step is collecting better data on the economic well-being of LGBTQ plus Americans. We need to know about where these workers are working in terms of their industries and occupations. We need to be able to expand our knowledge of the current economic conditions. And we also need to expand our knowledge of how existing enforcement activities are working and how policy interventions could be changed to address that. There's also so much that can be done through the administration um, to to strengthen standards and protections for for LGBTQI workers and ensure they're working or receiving decent wages and benefits. That means that ensuring jobs funded through federal spending are good jobs for LGBTQ workers and their families, taking a look at federal contracting, both in terms of wages and benefits, but also health benefits and are, are health benefits sufficient to cover gender affirming care. Um, ensuring that uh, anti, existing anti-discrimination protections are real by empowering LGBTQ workers to stand up for their rights. That means the, the Biden administration's budget that significantly boosts funding for this sort of enforcement is essential. But we also need to think about, can we partner with worker organizations and community organizations? So workers who've lost some trust in the federal government feel comfortable coming forward and reporting violations. We can also do a better job of building pathways into good jobs through apprenticeship and training focused on LGBTQ workers and LGBTQI youth. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the bipartisan infrastructure package is an incredible opportunity that the Biden administration was already pushing. Let's think about investing in an industry that frankly has not been um, as inclusive as it should be for many, many years. How do we invest in construction jobs in ways that also bridge and welcome workers 
as they come into the workforce and allow them to continue on by creating um, open and out places for them to be and welcoming places for them to be. Um, and then also, how do we think about supporting the workers' rights of workers to come together in solidarity through collective bargaining? Um, we know that unions help workers bargain not just for better wages and benefits, but also for non-discrimination protections and bans on dismissal without just cause, which can really help to, to, to solidify the rights of workers and supplement and ensure that workers can exercise their rights. And then finally, um, there's opportunities to really lead through federal example by making sure that the federal government is a model employer for its direct public employees. Um, that includes things like ensuring that LGBTQI plus workers can access quality federal job opportunities, expanding public sector apprenticeships, eliminating discriminatory health insurance exclusions, and strengthening federal employee bargaining rights. Linda, I'm curious, hearing this, you know, the, these ideas coming out of, you know, Carla and, and the Center for American Progress and a lot of private sector organizations, what are your thoughts on how, you know, a lot of these things that Carla mentioned are happening, you know, at the IRS from your experience, how do you think they could be kind of scaled to be a little bit more government wide? Well, the, the role of data uh, improving, okay, in, in this uh, group is, is vital. I mean, right now at the IRS, and I believe in other government agencies, uh, we depend on employee self-identifying on the Federal Employee uh, Viewpoint Survey or FEVS, as far as our workforce is concerned. Now, as far as nationwide, okay, yes, we're interested because with regard to our customers, our taxpayers, the um, during my sessions, when I train employees, I share a map of the LGBTQ proportion of population in the US provided in, in the 2019 Williams Institute School of Law. Okay, but it shows the uh, LGBTQ proportion to population in the states. Okay, and employees seem to really want that information because they want to know, uh, you know, is that for, for example, for recruitment, right now the IRS is looking at recruiting. We, we got some funding for recruitment. Uh, we need the frontline employees. So let's look at that map. You know, we need to go ahead and reach out to all of the groups, okay? And we don't have, you know, colleges for LGBTQ. We have for Hispanic, for Black, for but we don't have for LGBTQ. So we need to have that, that map that shows the proportion of the population of LGBTQ is a little higher in this state than this state, okay? So that is very helpful for us. And uh, the, co the contact representatives really like the map because uh, they're answering calls. So if the call is coming from one of the states that for, is 4.6 or higher, you know, in LGBTQ proportion, they, it's a friendly, you know, it's friendly to that, them, that group. But then you've got some states that are very low in percentage and it makes you wonder why, you know, and uh, the employees know, you know, I use the map myself because I'll ask the EEO side of the house, you know, okay, tell me nationwide, identify three or four sites that have more than three EEO cases that have to do with LGBTQ. And they're usually bathroom usage and pronoun usage. And those will be elevated to me and I'll get about five sites identified and we have a lot of sites. So I'm able to zero in and target those locations for awareness sessions. That's incredible work. And it really shows how it's not just about the employees and the employee experience, which is critical, but it's also about the engagement with the taxpayers and the American people. It, you know, it goes right back to what uh, the Honorable Scali talked about earlier with this idea that it is both about enhancing our workers' experience and enhancing our national standing um, and, you know, influencing the private sector and being a nation that truly leads with inclusivity. Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for today. This has been an incredible show. I want to thank Assistant Secretary of Defense for Readiness, Sean Skelly, LGBTQ Program Manager, Linda Ortiz, and Senior Director at the Center for American Progress, Carla Walter, for joining me today. Thank you all for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a very, very happy Pride.